We have uh, been for a few weeks now in uh, Paul's letter to, uh, it's, it's dubbed the letter to the Ephesians. We've seen it was probably a, intended as a, a circular letter, one that was intended not merely for one congregation or even one city, particularly a group of Christians in one city, but, but in a region, the region of kind of uh, Southwest Asia Minor where Ephesus is located. And so this is a, church, this is a letter that's generally written to Christians Uh, to congregations uh, kind of in an area. And because of that, it's a little less sort of particularly aiming at a problem. Um, And so it has a very kind of general tone to it, which actually makes it uh, even more maybe immediately recognizable to us the ways that it applies, the way that it speaks directly to our own lives and our own situations. And so we spent uh, three separate Sundays looking at this paragraph in uh, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, enumerating the, the great spiritual blessings that Christians have been given in Jesus Christ. Uh, we looked at that through the lens of what those blessings are, namely you've been chosen by God, you've been redeemed through the blood of Christ, you've been endowed with an inheritance, and you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit as our guarantee. We looked at through the lens of, of union with Christ and how the, the gateway to all of those blessings is our union with Jesus Christ, that God has, by faith, p- connected us to Christ in such a way that what is His is ours. His resources belong to us. His, uh, his uh, joy and love and life and future, we get to share in that because we're connected to, to Jesus Christ. And then last week we looked at particularly verse 10 and the cosmic scope of God's redemptive plan. The God is redeeming for himself not only a people, but an entire creation, a renewed heaven and earth, and a restored and redeemed humanity together summed up in Jesus Christ for his honor and glory. So we'll continue today moving on from those uh, those 12 verses, uh, and we'll, we'll look today at Uh, verses 15 through 23, the end of the first chapter. I wonder if sometimes you just wish somebody would help you know how to pray. Does anybody in in the area struggle with prayer? You don't have to raise your hand or anything. If you're anything like me, I suspect that at times you find your prayers maybe begin to all sound the same. Or maybe when you're praying for yourself or another loved one, you, you find yourself sort of unsure of what to pray for. What, what am I asking God uh, to do in, in this situation? And so sometimes our prayers kind of go in circles, and then we find ourselves kind of wondering, wait, is this even worth anything? What's the point of, of what I'm doing if I'm just going in circles and I don't even know what I'm asking? Maybe I should just leave the whole thing behind. I don't know if anybody else has ever experienced frustration like that in their prayer life. This passage today is one of uh, the most beautiful examples in the Bible of a simply, uh, simply a prayer, a prayer for other Christians uh, that Paul offers on behalf of his readers. And so he's going to tell them how he prays or that he prays, and then he actually prays. So in sort of enumerating for them the ways that he prays for them, he in effect uh, writes down a prayer. Uh, And in looking to this prayer, we will learn really important things about what prayer could look like. What, what, What could the purpose of prayer be? But even more than that, what particular 
benefits and blessings we have in Jesus Christ because of uh, this prayer. Let me read for us verses 15 through 23, and then we'll talk through this passage together and, and what it holds for us. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Amen. For this reason, I think that points back to all of the great spiritual blessings that he's already enumerated in verses 3 through 14 that Christians have. So he's telling these Christians in, in and around Ephesus as they read this letter, because of all of the great blessings that I know are yours in Jesus Christ, I give thanks. I continue to give thanks, making uh, remembering you in my prayers. And there's two reasons that he gives for uh, maybe the confidence that he has that these readers have indeed received all of these spiritual benefits. Na number one... He's heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus. So it's been reported that there is in your church and among you a strong faith in Jesus Christ. You've heard and believed the good news that sinners can be made right with God by repenting of their sin and trusting in Christ and his finished work on the cross and his resurrection. And so he says, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus. And number two, I've heard of your love toward all the saints. The saints, as we've talked about uh, in, in earlier messages in, in this series, the saints are all of God's people. It's, it's Christians. It's those who God has made holy, his holy ones. And so he says, because of your love for the saints, I'm confident that you've received all these spiritual blessings. And that rings true across the New Testament as we have teachings in places like 1 John that, that say anybody who loves God will love his brother, right? And if he says he loves God but he hates his brother, then he's a liar and the truth does not uh, abide in him. Love for God that's real and that's based on faith in Jesus expresses itself in love for one another in the body. See, he's placed us into a family, so when we trust in Christ, we become not just sons and daughters of God, we become brothers and sisters of one another. And there will be, if it's true and genuine uh, faith, there will be love for all the saints. And so Paul says, I have this evidence, if you will. I've heard that you have faith in Jesus Christ and that you have a sincere love for all the saints. And so because of that, I give 
thanks. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. The fact that he gives thanks that they've received these benefits and that they demonstrate these evidences, faith in Jesus and and love of the saints, reminds us that the work of salvation belongs to God. Because if it was their doing, he'd have no reason to thank God for it. He'd say, wow, that's really cool. Good on you, right? He'd say, kudos to you that you have faith in Jesus and love uh, the saints. And he doesn't say that, though. He says, I give thanks to God because you have faith in Jesus and because you love the saints. This is the work of God. And now, in verse 17, he begins to enumerate his prayers. He says, "I, I give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that... And then the rest of this passage is things that he prays for uh, his readers. Things that he prays. Now, I think if you take the lens here of why does Paul pray the way that he prays? Why why is this something that he asks for? You have to kind of ask the question, what problem does he see that prayer is the solution for? Right? What problem does he recognize that praying is the way to sort of solve this this issue. Look at verse 17. He says uh, that his prayers are that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. So this is a reference to God the Father, right? Remember that God is three persons in one God, Father, Son, Spirit. So that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. It seems that Paul recognizes a deficiency of some kind, not necessarily unique to these readers. He's not necessarily saying you have this problem, but I think pervasively and universally among all people and all Christians, there is a a tendency, a, a weakness, a deficiency that his prayer here is seeking to remedy. Namely, we are slow to know. Because he begins to pray that they would know certain things. He prays that, that, that God would give the spirit of wisdom and, uh, and insight and revelation and knowledge that our eye, the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened or opened. We are slow to know. We're we're dull of sight, spiritual sight, if you will. Uh, Slow to to hear and understand what God has done and is now doing in them. I don't know if you find that to be true of yourself at times. I can certainly identify with this. There's There's a dullness at times to really grasp and really know and really appropriate all that God has done and all that he's given and all that is mine because of Jesus Christ. And so he, he's going to speak to this dullness. He's going to speak to this spiritual sort of lack of sight. There, there, there's a spiritual dullness that can settle on a Christian's heart, whether through the persistent snare of, uh, of sin and, and temptation or the stealthy assaults of the devil as he attacks that creates a gulf between what we believe to be true and what we consciously experience in our lives. 
if you've ever noticed a disconnect or a distance between what you believe about the gospel and about who God is and about who I am as a Christian and what you actually experience and feel and, and, and sense in your own life, this spiritual dullness is, I think, largely what accounts for that. It's that we're slow to see, slow to know, slow to really understand the spiritual riches that belong to us in Jesus Christ. What's the solution? God's Spirit must enlighten our hearts. If we are slow to see, if we are dull of spiritual sight, then the solution to that is a miracle of illumination. The Spirit of God must give us the sight that we don't have. He must open the eyes of our hearts. The truth, I think, that underlies that reality is, is that we are utterly impotent to heal our own spiritual malaise or lethargy or slowness. We have this spiritual dullness, slowness, mutedness that cannot be overcome but by the Spirit of the living God. And this is why we must pray. This is why indeed Paul prays for his readers here in these ways. We must pray. Pray for yourselves. Pray for each other. Pray for other believers. We must plead with God. As Paul here pleads on behalf of the Ephesians, open our eyes. Give us wisdom. Give us insight. Help us to know. Because you can read a paragraph like Ephesians 1, 3-14 and not be just swept up in glory and joy and delight is evidence that there is a spiritual dullness. We are slow to see and grasp and understand all that God is for us in Jesus Christ. And the only way for that spiritual dullness to be overcome is the Spirit of God to illumine us, to give light, to open our hearts that we might see and understand. And so Paul begins to pray that we would know, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know. And he lists three things that he wants us to know. But I want to say before we get into those three things, what kind of knowledge he's talking about here. It's more than mere sort of intellectual uh, agreement with some facts. God chose me. Okay, I believe that. Jesus redeemed me by his blood. Okay, I think that's true. It's more, it's more than something that you can see and agree with. Yeah, I, I believe that's true. He wants us to know this, not like a fact, but experientially. Like the way that you know the wonder and beauty of the ocean not because you read a poem about the ocean, but because you have sat on its shores and felt the waves roll over you. There's a different knowing of the wonder of the ocean when you're there and you're in it and you're experiencing it. And I think that's what Paul has in mind for us here. He wants us to come to know these things, not just as facts that we check off on a list, but as things we deeply experience and know in a personal way. So what are these three particular things that he is praying that we would come to know? Look at verse 18, middle of verse 18. That you may know 
Number one, what is the hope to which he has called you? Number two, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And three, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Hope, glory, and power. Hope, glory, and power. And I want you, excuse me, I want to observe right up front that these are all things that we already have. Paul does not begin praying for stuff he wants God to give to us later. He's praying that we would come to know, really know, in an experiential way, what we already have because of Jesus Christ. He has granted us, he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, verse 3. So now he wants us to really come to know those spiritual blessings that already belong to us. The hope of God's calling on you, the glory of God's delight in you, and the power of God's work in you. Let's look at those things one at a time. The hope of God's calling on you. Now when he speaks here of God calling, I think this is connected to what we saw about God's purpose back in in verse 10, if you look at that verse, where he has revealed a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, that is in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. So he has this global plan to sum up all things in Christ in a a recreated heaven, a new heaven, a new earth, and a restored and redeemed humanity all summed up in Christ for his glory in his worship. This is the plan that he's unfolding. And so when he says that you've been called to, his, to a hope, he's pointing us back to this reality. You have been included in God's redeeming plan for all of the world and all of humanity who will trust in Christ. Before we believed upon Christ, Paul tells us in chapter 2, verse 12, that we were without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ, we have been given the hope of participating in God's saving purposes for the world through Him. And that's not hope in the sense of wishful thinking. Hope this works out. It's a hope in the sense of a settled confidence of promised good that we know is coming. You have been included in this purpose, saving, redeeming purposes of God. And I want you, Christian, to know the hope of His calling, to really grasp the hope of His calling. And again, the fact of calling, the act, I should say, that the act of God calling points out to us God's active role in our salvation, namely in our believing. He didn't just wind up the clock and leave it ticking on its own. Like he didn't just sort of put the gospel out into the air and then just hope we came to salvation, uh, hope that someday we might come to believe it. No, he effectually called us by name to belief in Christ and salvation through his gospel. Jesus uh, echoed this truth in John chapter 10 where he speaks of himself as the good shepherd. And in verse 3 he says, My sheep know my voice and I call them by name and they follow me. 
This is the reality of God's calling in our lives. If he's chosen us, we can be certain that he's calling us. And when he calls to us, as Jesus also says in John chapter 6, all that the Father draws will come. So God is calling here. And so when he speaks of the hope of his calling, or a hope of the calling, uh, excuse me, in verse 18, the hope to which he has called you. That's how ESV renders that. He's speaking here of the reality that God has chosen and called you out for himself. So God is the agent, the active participant, the pursuer in our salvation. And so he wants us to to know that and understand what that means. I have been called by God. God has called to me. Jesus, the good shepherd, has called me by name. And so the fact that I belong to him is all of his grace and goodness. He wants us to come to, to know this, experience the goodness and the grace and the love that he has for us. The second thing he wants us to know, to come to know, is what I'm, the way I'm saying it is the glory of his delight in you. The glory of his delight in you. The reason I say it that way is because of this. Look at that phrase at the end of verse 19. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Now you might think, upon a quick read-through, that the inheritance he's speaking of is the one he's already spoken of in this, in this passage. He spoke in verse 11 of an inheritance that we have obtained and having been predestined to that. And then in verse 14 of how, having been sealed with the Holy Spirit, he is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So you might think that he's speaking of the inheritance that is coming to us. But that's not what he says. He says he wants us to come to know the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. God's inheritance. He's the one in view here. The inheritance is not ours, but God's. And he wants us to come to know the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Namely, redeemed humanity. Namely, the church of Jesus Christ. Jew and Gentile united in Christ are to be the inheritance of God, his special prize, his treasured possession for all eternity. So when he speaks here of his glorious inheritance in the saints, what he's telling us is God cares more deeply for you than you could possibly fathom. You are more treasured in his eyes than you may even be willing to believe. God loves you more than you could possibly know. The wealth of the glory of his inheritance indicates specifically the way that this unified, redeemed humanity highlights the glory of God. ESV again translates it as glorious inheritance, but that phrase literally is the riches of the glory of his inheritance. And so I think it's specifically highlighting glory, the glory of God, the beauty of God that is seen in the the redemption of this new humanity that belongs to him, that is his treasured possession. 
Peter O'Brien says, God's people are his inheritance, his own possession, in whom he will display to the universe the untold riches of his glory. As a consequence, Paul prays that his readers might appreciate the extraordinary value which God places on them. He views them as in his beloved son and estimates them accordingly. When God looks at you, he doesn't see the things that you might see first. He doesn't see the mess. He doesn't see the failures. He doesn't see the weaknesses. He sees his beloved son. Remember, we're united to Christ. What's his is ours. And I think part of what that means is when God says, behold, my beloved son and who I'm well pleased, he says that of us. He says that of you. That's who you are to him as his people, as his treasured possession. So Paul really wants us to come to know, and he's asking the Holy Spirit to enlighten our eyes that we might see in a fuller way the glory of God's delight in us, in his people. I wonder how that might change the way that we think about ourselves, the way that we treat one another, the way that we make decisions, the way that we manage our time and engagements on a sort of day-to-day basis to really recognize God delights in me. God delights in you, Christian. You are his treasured possession. He loves you. He delights in you. He's not frustrated with you. He's not wringing his hands. Why can't he get his act together? He delights in you. That's how he feels about you. I wonder how that might change the way we approach so much of our lives. If really, if the Spirit would really grant us to know this is how he feels about us. He wants us to know the, the hope of his calling. He wants us to know the glory of his delight in us. And he wants us to know and spends the bulk of his time in this paragraph. He wants us to know the immeasurable greatness of his power in our lives. The immeasurable greatness of his power in our lives. And check this out. He stacks up power words here. In verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. If you look closely, you could see the, all of these, these active words that have to do with strength and, and operation and, and greatness. The immeasurable. So he, he doesn't just say his power. I want you to know the, the power that is at work in you. He says, I want you to know the the greatness of this power. It's not just any power. This is a grand and majestic and great power, but it's not just a great power. It's it's an immeasurably great power. He just keeps backing up and, and adding more words. I wish you could know. I'm praying that you would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power for you. The power that's at work in you. According to what? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. He is so uh, committed and and diligent uh, and determined for us to see God's immeasurable power that is at work on our behalf. Okay, 
So he wants us to know that God's power is at work in us. Couldn't he stop right there, right? I want you to know that God's power is at work in you. Okay, that's a great thought. But he goes on and on and on. And in fact, he's going to tell us what is this power like? It's like he, he begins to go, how can I express? How can I express to these Christians how great is the power of God? How overcoming and vast is the power of God that is working actively for them? And so he begins to, to spell out for us some of the ways that this power has expressed itself, has demonstrated itself. And so when he says, uh, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ, he's now going to point us toward some of God's acts toward Jesus that demonstrate what kind of power is at work in us. So these next, he gives us four particular things that God has done for, to, in Christ that all reflect for us the kind of and the depth of power that God is working in our lives. Number one, this power raised Christ from the dead. You see that? according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. This power that's at work in you is the same power that brought Jesus to life. He was dead for real, dead, in a grave, dead, not breathing, dead. And God brought him back to life. And death no longer has dominion over him. It's not merely that he raised from the dead, it's that he defeated death in his resurrection. This is a unique power. <clears throat> he raised Christ from the dead. Number two, he seated Christ at his own right hand. You can see that right after this. He said that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Being seated at the right hand of the throne of the king means this is authority. This is the one that is my agent in the world to do my bidding, right? That, so when he says that he seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places, he's saying, I've given him authority. I have given him rule and reign. And he even expresses that a bit further. He seated him at the right hand, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, right? Above every spiritual power, above every spiritual darkness and demon and devil in the universe, Jesus is now far above all of these powers. And far above, it says, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. The name of Jesus has within it more power and glory and authority than any other name in all of heaven and earth. Which reminds me of Paul in Philippians chapter 2, where he says that because of Christ's uh, humiliation that is in, in the cross, as he lowered himself uh, to be crucified, therefore God has highly exalted him, it tells us. I'm trying to get to verses 9 through 11 of Philippians chapter 2. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that's ruler, king, boss, master, to the glory of God the Father. Christ has been given this name above every name, and he's been placed in this place of authority high above all other spiritual powers. Above all other presidents and congresses and governments. Above all other kings and tyrants and dictators. Christ is high above all powers. Third, he put all things under Christ's feet. This is a similar reality, but it, it's sort of another expression of it. Not only spiritual powers, but everything in the universe. Everything in this world that we can see and anything that we can't see, all of it is under his feet. Christ sits at the throne of God, at the right hand of God, and everything is beneath him, below him. Now, it's true, as we've talked about recently, that that Christ's complete unhindered sway over the universe will not be fully realized until the new heavens and the new earth. Chapter 1, verse 10. Uh, as Hebrews 2.8 tells us, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. It doesn't mean that in reality they're not subjected. It just means that's not what we see because we live in this tension, this kind of already and not yet of the kingdom of God. It's, it's inaugurated, it's begun, but it's not yet fully consummated. And so there's, there's tension, and there's ways that it seems like he's in control, and there's ways that it seems like Satan is winning the day. But it's really settled. Even though it looks uncertain to us at times, the reality is the work has already been completed. And Paul's emphasis here is on the present rule of Christ, the already aspect of the kingdom of God. F.F. Bruce, the great scholar, says, Christ's present enthronement is assurance enough that this blessed consummation will come without fail. So the fact that Christ is seated in the heavenly places at the right hand of God and all spiritual powers and all universal realities have been subjected under his feet tells us all we need to know. Christ is king. Christ will rule. Christ will have his way. And then the fourth and final reality here of God's working toward Christ that demonstrates his work in us is that he has given Christ as head over all things to the church. He's given Christ to the church. What an immeasurable gift. Look again at chapter 1, verse 22. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. That is Christ and his authority is a gift to his people. Christ's power and authority is operated on our behalf for our benefit. That's the reality he's pointing us toward. Christ belongs to the church and we belong to him. And he introduces here the notion of Christ as head, not in the, not necessarily in the metaphorical body and head dynamic that he'll speak of in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and even a little bit later in Ephesians, but he's using head here to mean ruler, to mean the one who's in charge. 
and we might use the phrase like a, a head of state or something, is somebody who is sort of at the top of the uh, 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 pyramid of authority, right? And he's using it in that way. Christ is given as head over all, the one who's in charge, he's been given to the church. So God's gift to the church is this ruling Christ. It's this authoritative Jesus. And then he speaks of the church as his body. He gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, Christ is the one who fills all in all. And it's not to say that the church fills up something in Christ that is lacking. So it's not that the church is the fullness of Christ because Christ was missing something and we filled up what was lacking. That's not what he's saying here. He is saying that when he says that the church is the fullness of him who fills all in all, he's saying that in the people of God dwells all the fullness of riches in Jesus Christ. When he says in Colossians that uh, the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell in Christ bodily, now it's as though he says the fullness of Christ, and you're, because you're united to him, the fullness of Christ lives in you. So the church has become the, the fullness of Christ because he has filled us. And just as he'll be uh, all things will be summed up in Christ, so all things are filled up and summed up in Christ within the church, within the people of God. In Christ's fullness, the church, as Christ's body, receives and participates in his fullness. So Christ is given as a gift to the church, as its head, its ruler, its source, and the church in turn experiences the rich fullness of his life. And the way that Christ operates in that authority, the way that Christ rules over the church is primarily in his word. As the church gathers in his name and hears and receives his word and places itself gladly under its authority, and we live in submission to the word of the king, Christ lives out his authority in the church. And we thereby on earth become an expression of his kingdom in this fallen world. So all of these things that he has said about the power of God, look, it's, it's just like this. It's, it's the power of God that raised Christ from the dead and seated Christ at the right hand of the Father and put all things, all spiritual powers and earthly powers under uh, Christ's feet in subjection to him and given Christ as head over all things as a gift to the church this is the same power that's at work in you now. Yesterday, now, tomorrow. Ten minutes from now, still going to be working in you. It's at work in, all, in the lives of all believers all the time. And he wants us to come to know this, to come to experience this. And again, I think the immediate sort of tension that that raises or question that that raises for us is about the gap that often exists between that reality and our experience. I think that that gap can be attributed to the spiritual dullness that we spoke of at the outset. The eyes of our hearts are dim and we need the grace of divine illumination, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our hearts to begin to see the glories of our salvation in increasing fullness. 
I submit to you that the main work in sanctification, in the, the progressing holiness of a Christian, is not finding new expressions of holiness. It's not in coming to learn new things about what God has in store down the road. It's really in increasingly unfolding the riches he's already given us in Jesus Christ. That's what sanctification is all about. That's what discipleship is all about. God has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness, 2 Peter chapter 1. All things pertaining to life and godliness. He's given us every spiritual blessing in Christ. It's already ours. Oh, that we might come to really know it and see it and, and treasure it and believe it and experience it in our lives. That's what Paul is after here in this prayer. That you might come to know the hope of his calling, the glory of his delight in you and the immeasurable greatness of his power that's at work in you all the time. Three results of this knowledge. Let me give you a few applications and then we'll close up. Three re results. If, as we come to know these things, to know and understand and experience the reality of God's uh, of hope and, and his love for us and his power at work in us, three things. Number one, prayer. I think it's fitting that this is a passage which effectively is a prayer. And as we come to understand the realities that he's praying for, that ought to be one of the very first expressions in our own life. The very first ways that, that we begin to then grow is in our prayer. We pray for prayers for ourselves, prayers for each other. And just as Paul has prayed that his readers would come to comprehend what God has already done for them in Christ, I think that tells us something about our focus in prayer. Our focus in prayer shouldn't be on what we need from God in the future in order to grow and persevere. It should be on what God has already provided for us through our union with Christ. And that we would simply learn to appropriate those riches for ourselves and for his glory. If we really get a sense of what God is doing and who he is and his power toward us, we will pray and we will pray more and we will pray better. And our prayers will be zeroed in on the realities of the spiritual blessings that belong to us in Christ. God help me to see and know these spiritual blessings. It gives us a great way to pray for each other. If you're thinking about your fellow church member and you're not, you, I want to pray for this person. I'm not exactly sure what to pray. God, uh, bless them, keep them healthy, right? We come up with some general kinds of things to pray. Oh my goodness, pray like this. Lord, will you please help him or help her to come to really know and experience today in some fuller way the riches that he has in Christ. Come, help him come to really know and experience and appropriate the power that is at work in his life. It gives us great exhortations of how to pray for ourselves and for one another. Number two, dependence. It, 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 this will result in, in greater dependence on him because we recognize any growth, any progress, any good in me, it's from Him. Our salvation is His work in us, including our sanctification, to the extent that we neglect the ordinary means of His grace in our lives, prayer, scripture reading, the church. 
we practically deny our need for God. That's just, that's just the reality. That's the spiritual dullness that we're demonstrating when we neglect those things. I don't need to read the Bible. I don't need to pray. I don't really need to go to church. I don't really need to be in fellowship with other Christians. I don't really need the, the disciplines, so to speak. It, the, the more we live apart from those things, those means that God uses to, to give grace in our lives, we're really saying, I don't really need you that much, God. But the more we come to see and know and understand the greatness of his power in us and the glory of his delight in us and the hope of his calling in, in our lives, the more we'll come to know we utterly depend on him. And we will lean on the resources and the means of grace that he's given to us to help us to grow. And then finally, confidence. Oh, as we come to know these realities, as we come to get a, a truer sense not just mental understanding, but, but feeling down in our hearts the, uh, the, the work of God in past and present and, and the secured work in, in the future, the, the relentless, powerful working of the risen, exalted, and enthroned Christ in our lives on our behalf, we will be assured of the daily strength to fight temptation and resist the devil. I know that I'll have the resources I need. He tells me to come to him in my moment of need and he'll help me. That I might find grace to help in time of need, Hebrews chapter 4. And the, the, the strength to persevere in faith to the end. And safely reach the shores of eternity. The more we come to see and understand and know the power of God that's at work in us, the more confidence we'll have. Even though things around us change and and are hard and uncomfortable and we're not certain about what comes next, we can have an unshakable confidence, a growing confidence. God is going to do this. God is going to do what's necessary to get me in all my feebleness and frailty from where I am to the shores of the heavenly kingdom in safety and in glory. So as we come to know these realities in a deeper and truer way and, and appropriate his grace and power in our lives, I think it'll lead us to deeper prayer, to fuller dependence on him and an unshakable confidence in God's work in us from start to finish for his glory. May God work these things in our lives. May the spirit open the eyes of our hearts to see these incredible realities that belong to us in Jesus Christ. Let me pray.